Hey, what's happening? This is Miles Kennedy from Alter Bridge, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. So as we round out the month of August, uh, we got kind of an interesting one for you. Leave it to Richie to decide to go hit up one of the premier uh, journalists over in the UK to talk about um, Europe. Yep, you heard that right. You know, Dave Reynolds, he's written for Kerrang!, for Metal Hammer, like all the major magazines, classic rock, all that good stuff. And Richie decided that uh, he wanted to hit Dave up and talk to him about the band Europe. So that is what we have in store for you this week. And if you do want to dig a little bit more into the background of Dave Reynolds, there's actually a really great interview with him over at GetReadyToRock.com over in their Backstage Heroes section. Really good thing about how we got started, influences, favorite bands, views on music, all that good stuff. So again, that's over at GetReadyToRock.com. And then there's a little thing called Backstage Heroes. Click over there. Great interview with Dave Reynolds. But before you go read that great interview, why don't you listen to this great interview as, as I said before, Richie sat down with Dave Reynolds several months ago and they talk all about the band Europe. So with that, lots of good stuff this week. So we're going to get right into it right now. Hi, Richie. Hey, Dave. How you doing? All right. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I'm, uh, I'm freezing my ass off just outside of Boston. Oh, no. Yeah, it's that time of year. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever make it over here to Boston at all? Um, I've only ever been to Boston once, and that was when um, on a Britney Fox tour when we popped into a club one night for, on a, on on a night off. I've never been to Boston otherwise. I'd love to love to go there one day. Hmm. So, so what I have you on for? Um, I want to really talk about the band Europe, and maybe maybe get into the Swedish melodic rock scene around that time and all the bands that came from it because there's something about that scene that you know still resonates to this day there's a lot of the bands are still out there so and i were you writing for kerrang uh when the final when the final countdown broke you weren't writing for him at the time no no it was um i was just about to um it was just before i started writing for kerrang at late 1980s well actually I did write for Kerrang, obviously, very early on, but then um, uh, about 1982 for a couple of issues, but then I didn't go back there until um, 1987. So it was with Metal Forces when the final countdown broke through. Mm. Were you aware of the band before then? Yes. Okay, so yeah. you, were, you were a fan from the, which album, Wings of Tomorrow, or the debut? No, the first album. Um, I had a, a friend in Sweden called Lena Graf who sent me um, that uh, the first album on vinyl um, when it originally came out on um, Hot International Records um, alongside stuff like Lloyd Bell's Band and Torch and things like that. So she was a really good... We basically swapped records um, and she ended up going on to form um, Mega Rock Records with my friend Dave Constable and, and Capital Mass and all that sort of stuff that um, came out of all that. So she was she was my um, sort of like gateway into the Swedish rock scene back then. Mm. Where where do you think the inspiration came for all these bands um, in Sweden? Because there seems to be something in the water there when it comes to melodic rock. They actually get a lot of support from the government um, in terms of, of, of music because they take culture very seriously, certainly the musician side of things, so they get funding from the government in order to basically be musicians and they develop their craft. And so that's how all of these bands are able to, to, to get to the point where they are so good they cannot be denied. Hmm. So like, it, the, there's colleges available for them to learn their craft, learn their songwriting. Um, I wouldn't Say there's colleges. I, I really don't know about it in that great depth. I mean, obviously, a Swedish musician will be able to give you a little bit more background than that. But I know that they they get funding in order to be able to basically 
um, do what they do and, and hone their craft in terms of writing, playing, and, and recording, and so forth. Mm. So, so you were a big fan of Europe's first record. Oh yeah, it was it was brilliant, and so was the second one, Wings of Tomorrow. I mean, they just they just had had that sound down right then. It was obviously very influenced by UFO and Thin Lizzy and, and those kind of bands, but it was so having since got hold of what they were doing um, long since got hold of what they were doing before Europe when they were called Force um, that was very raw um, sort of new wave of British heavy metal sounding stuff but you could tell that there was, there was that thin as a UFO influence and then that that transcended itself onto that first record because they had become much better at their craft in terms of their songwriting skills and their production as well was far better than the demo stuff they did as Force so that's that's that the whole thing background to that. So it was just this fresh album that sort of almost came out of nowhere from from Scandinavia at that point in time. Mm. Um, do you think they were the first Swedish rock band to get to really get noticed, or did you did you have others on your radar that you thought, wow, do, yeah, these guys are definitely going to make it before even Europe broke? I can't honestly remember, to be honest. It's going, yeah. it's going way back. Obviously, there was there were a lot of Swedish bands um, around at that time that have subsequently come out uh, and been known of, but they were really the first ones that, that made an impression. I mean, obviously, the sweet, Swedish music up to that point had effectively started and ended with ABBA as far as the, the international music scene was concerned. But from the, the Sort of like 1982. Maybe they were motivated by what was happening in Britain at that time with the, with you know, with the new wave of British heavy metal, which was then a direct result of things in, in UFO. It all began to sort of escalate with all more bands coming out of the woodwork. Not just Europe. There was Glory Bell's band. I think there was Overload and and all of these other metal bands that were coming out at the time, which then sort of blew up into this more melodic um, and and glam side of things with like bands like Easy Action and so forth mm. it, there, there was other Scandinavian bands that there was high hopes for I think just after Europe I'm thinking about Pretty yeah. Maids uh, TNT yeah. Um, yeah. and th- they're all still going in some form or another but did, which one of those bands did you think would 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 make it next after Europe? I for me, I thought TNT would definitely blow up, and they never did. TNT were great, um, certainly when they got Tony Harnell in the band. I mean, that took them to, took them on to a next level. And and what would um uh what was the guitarist now? Because was Escape McGrawley Tech Pro. What he was doing the guitar was was just phenomenal. Um, um, what the Pretty Maids were definitely on my radar because they were being championed quite heavily by the editor of Metal Forces uh, that, um, back then, Bernard Doe, um, and he had a good sort of like insight into De- what, ha- what was happening in Denmark. And Pretty Maids actually came over to to Britain um, very early on when they first put that, that EP out of Bullet Records. And I remember seeing them play at the Royal Standard um, in, in North London, and they, they were great. They're excellent band because they had that sort of like melodic rock feel to them. But again, they were definitely influenced by bands like UFO and Deep Purple, especially with the keyboard side of things. Mm. What about a band like Treat? Were you a fan of them? Yes. Yeah. And again, they kind of kind of followed through from the um, from from Europe. What Europe were doing, and their first album was really good. And all of this stuff was a real. Sort of like picking them up, picking them up from um, Shades Records and that t- uh, t- 220 Volt as well were another band that, that were definitely on my radar at that point in time as well. Mm. Were, were DAD Scandinavian? Sorry? DAD. Do you remember that band? No. Yeah, they were Danish. Oh, Dan- yeah. yeah. So I think they were a yeah. little bit later though. I think they were in the late 80s. Yeah, they sort of started out as like kind of a punk punk rock band psycho rocker rocker psycho rock rockabilly or whatever they were but and then they sort of like developed into this more hard rock band as well so I, they didn't sort of like come into my sort of, um on my sort of like radar until maybe um the late 80s like 1988 so mm. like um i can't remember what the album title was now uh <laughs> no no i you know what I, I, 
when we're talking, there's bands' names that are coming up. The album was called No Fuel for the Pilgrims. Yeah. And the other band now that just came to mind, since we're talking about Scandinavian bands, uh, were you a fan of Shotgun Messiah? Oh, yeah. Um, because um, they had links to Kingpin. Well, they were Kingpin before they became Shotgun Messiah, and they had links to Easy Action because the singer, when it came from Easy Action, he was on the first Easy Action album. Again, Kingpin album um, was again sold through Shades and Imports, so that sold um, a phenomenal amount of, of records back then. Um, there were obviously issues with the names, which is why they changed to Shotgun Messiah, but yeah, but that whole, you know, because Swedish rock bands, or Swedish rock fans actually, um, they always seemed to go for those over the top glam bands because they were huge. Um, sort of like the Swedish audience was was big on Sweet. They were big on Kiss and all of those sort of bands you'd see in, in poster magazine that they used to sell in, in Sweden, Germany, and so forth. So I think it's a, it's sort of like was derived from that whole wanting the, the big sort of like rock star image, and then, then Swedish bands adopted that. You can actually see that happening later on um, in sort of like maybe 10, 15 years ago, whereby this whole retro glam thing came back into fashion in Sweden, especially with bands like the Poodles and so forth, because, um, and, and other, well, all sorts of other bands as well, because of that Motley Crue influence, so that next generation of musicians mm. effect on that. Mm. Did you get a chance to. Um to go over to any of the Scandinavian countries and see the bands live or maybe go on the road with them or and interview them? Um, I lived in Sweden for a bit, actually. Oh, okay. Um, in, in 1995, I, I worked for Mega Rock Records for a little bit. Um, but, but prior to that, I did, uh, um, because of, of my friend Dave Constable on Lena Graf um, living out there, I went out there quite a lot. I never really went out on the road um, with anybody, um, but I did, did go, so I did see bands in Sweden and also uh, went to Denmark and, um, and Norway as well. So um, one of the, the biggest things I probably saw were one in um, in Sweden, one of the bands that I remember seeing there were Alien uh, when they were quite big news um, and uh, plenty of other, other groups around that time. It's Alive were one of the biggest sort of like eye openers I saw over there because they were just an awesome live band. I remember seeing them in a in a restaurant uh, playing a show um, mm. and that was the band that introduced Max Martin to the world because he was a singer of that band and he effectively used it for live as a template for everything he's done since as a producer and songwriter. Mm. So, so tell me about the live scene in Sweden. Um, mm -hmm. Was there was there a lot of towns that had live music? Was there was it just in mainly the capital and maybe one or two more? Like was there big venues, small venues? Could like just set the scene on all that. In Sweden, from my experience, it tended to be focused more on on the big cities and larger towns. Um, I could be wrong, and I'm sure some of our Scandinavian listeners would would tell me otherwise. But there, there were obviously you you got in Stockholm, for example, you've got the huge arena type gigs um, at Globen, which is um, uh, sort of like a an indoor arena where they have ice hockey matches um, and also the, the massive concerts. The big bands play like Kiss and so forth. You've also got then um, your club venues, and there's also other sorts of um, shed type venues which is there's one in in Jurgården which like in Stockholm which I can't remember the title of that's where Skid Row played there and all Iron Maiden and so forth. Um so it's mainly it, it's from my experience it's sensed on the on the on cities and big towns such as Stockholm, um Gothenburg, Helsingborg, Malmo, etc. Um but the club scene was really, really vibrant whenever I went over there. I saw quite a number of bands there uh, and they also had um, open air shows um, in the summer as well. There's a big, there's a water festival in Stockholm every, sort of, I think is around August time, and they have a lot of bands playing. Now, I remember seeing Joey Tempest um, play there in, in the summer of '95 on a stage in the middle of Stockholm, which was quite quite amazing to see someone of that ilk. And when he just gone solo, actually, so that was quite something to see. Mm. Um. What's your opinion on why the black metal 
market happened in Norway because in Sweden you have the melodic rock stuff and then you go to Norway and, and the black metal scene just seemed to blow up there. Like you, as someone who lived there and who maybe who covered it a lot more than maybe I would, can you offer any opinion why the black metal market became so big in Norway? There's probably lots of things that you could say about it. It might be, it might be boredom <laughs> that, that people suddenly decide that this is what I'm going to go and do and go out and burn some churches in the name of black metal. Um, but no, in all seriousness, it's just the fact that um, there was obviously just a thing that that resonated with kids of a certain age at that time. So there was a lot of coverage in, in magazines such as Metal Forces about these bands and bands like Venom um, were no no different to Kiss in that regard in terms of having this sort of that quite, quite controversial image that just resonated with, with people of a certain age and they just wanted to replicate what they were doing and be as, as controversial as possible and piss people off if you can pardon the technical term. <laughs> so it's all about rebellion, I guess, and it just just seemed to centre on, on Norway um, for for one area, but there were other bands. There were bands in England who were who were black metal bands, but they didn't go out and do some of the stuff that, that sort of like some of our um, the unfortunate people in, in um, Norway ended up doing. There's obviously some. There was obviously some sort of thing going on there, um, where they just took it to the extreme. Mm. So, so let's bring it back to Europe and, and the final countdown. Yeah. Um, yes. What What did you was that the first song you heard from that album, and what did you think of it? Um, it, it, yeah, it was the first song I heard from the album because I think it was released as a single, but up to that point, it it was pretty interesting because it, it, it was, I don't know how to describe it really, it was sort of like a mashup of cheesy Euro pop and rock music. And it's kind of a really, it's a little bit of an anomaly um, on that record, because the rest of the album isn't really doesn't really have that kind of poppy intro look, because it's, isn't it's not something that everyone knows that song, um, but they don't necessarily know too much about the band behind it because the rest of the songs on that album they look like Rock the Night, Danger on the Track, Ninja Cherokee, all of those all of those songs are more pleasant to the to hard rock ears so to speak as opposed to the final countdown which can be enjoyed by pretty much everybody and because it has they just have something with that song and um, that they weren't able to, to replicate anywhere else it just it just clicked so they just had this, this moment of genius um, and some people hate it <laughs> mm. did you think it was a hit when you heard it first oh yeah 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 Heard Bon Jovi's um, "Slippery When Wet" album. That was that hit written all over it as well. Mm. I think what a lot of American listeners won't understand, and me and you will, is the impact yeah. that had on the rock scene in, especially I think in the UK because it's huge. Yeah, when I was when I was growing up in around eighty six, eighty seven, the huge bands in America were Motley Crue, Rash. Um, Dawkins maybe, and their yeah. Im- their impact in the UK was more or less negligible. They w- they weren't really played on the radio, and it was Bon Jovi and Europe that introduced a, a lot of that type of music to a lot of people. Absolutely, yeah, and and it, that's that Europe were absolutely huge all over the world as a result of that song, and it did Im- impress people, and it did make people want to look into similar kind of bands which is how that whole and I hate this term hair metal but it's how that really evolved almost as a genre on it on its own and I do hate that term but the popularity of those songs those bands and that look the poodle poems etc people wanted a part of that they thought it was exciting it was colorful it was it was it was new to to many people and that's why they embraced it Mm. I en- I actually ended up hating the band for a while because they got so big that yeah. my sister she'd listen to pop music and Europe and Bon Jovi. Yeah. So I felt yeah. in some ways that they weren't my band anymore. That 
they'd crossed yeah. over to everybody. And for a while, actually, I, I just didn't listen to Bon Jovi or Europe at all. And I, someone had said to me, oh, you're a fan of them. And I'm like, no, I'm a fan of the, the some of the smaller bands that hadn't actually broken. I felt the same way about Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. A, that's another one because, uh, yeah. like like me, you were in on Appetite, and you were probably yeah. in on on the It's So Easy, the EP before it oh, even the, the EP, yeah the EP before before Appetite for Destruction yeah and, and then of course that broke and everybody loved them yeah and then every, every band and their and their mother wanted to be Guns N' Roses or look like Guns N' Roses or sound like Guns N' Roses and that set off that whole sleazy drug. Mm culture which I didn't particularly take to at all yeah so were you were you surprised when John Norham left um, yes yeah because why would someone want to leave a band that had got so successful when you know it was their third album it wasn't like they were an overnight success um, and he'd been with them from the start with Joey Tempest and they were the two original members still left in the band and so it was a bit of a surprise that he left when he did. Mm. But it obviously, he felt he was made made the right decision at that time, and I guess he did. Perhaps mm. <laughs> he went on to do what he felt he he wanted to do, which was like let go solo and do a lot of other different type of music. Mm. Now, the, the final countdown as a song, it, I was a little bit surprised that it broke the band because it wasn't a ballad. Um, the ballads, no. the ballads came later on. Carrie was the big one on that record, um, yeah. and I think the track is over five minutes long as well. And at the yeah. time, radio weren't playing anything that was over three minutes. Um, I don't, I honestly don't think, and this is just my opinion. You can disagree with me. I don't think that was written as a hit. I think that they wrote the other tracks like Carrie is to to break the band, and that just happened kind of by accident to be the one that broke them um maybe maybe i don't i've never really thought about it like that because it certainly has all the makings of a a kind of like a commercial song that they actually wanted to um be successful Mm. so i think they were surprised by how successful it was so when when was the first time you saw the band live um, I saw the band live when they played um, Hammersmith Odeon um, in 1987. It was they, they played three nights at Hammersmith Odeon, and it was in um, oh, I sort of think about it February 1987. And that was at Hammersmith, and Ways were the band that supported them. Wow, I lo- was uh, was that Terry Brock? Was he in the band at the time? Yes. Yeah. Oh, so they Terry were on. The they were on Native Sons. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. some that's some album that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um we were, were you the Kerrang writer or the writer that said that they were louder than Motorhead or was that someone else? I think that was Derek Oliver. Okay. Okay, that was maybe further down the line. It must have been Derek Oliver. Hmm. So in eighty seven, I'm trying to think, Norum was gone then, wasn't he? Or was he still there? No, I remember, no, Norum was still with them because I remember seeing them because they went to the States um, a few months later and I remember seeing them again um, at the Beacon Theatre in New York on the, on the 15th of May um, and they played exactly the same set. And I seem to remember they played the, I seem to remember they played the final countdown twice. <laughs> once, towards, once at the start and once at the end. Um, and I also remember there was an after-show after party in the foyer of, of the Beacon Theatre afterwards, and the invites were actually made to look like Swedish passports. I've still got one somewhere, if I could find it. Mm. So did you know the replacement, uh, Key Marcello? Did you know him at all from any other band? I did I didn't. I, I knew of him. I didn't know him personally as I do now, but he, I knew of him as being, um, you know, the guitarist in Easy Action, and also um, a guy who was quite good behind the, the production desk as well, because he he was a producer, um, and he, he did a, a lot of work with other Swedish bands, and also his own band on his second album. Mm. Were you surprised that they went for another Swedish musician? when they probably could have had their pick of any musician anywhere in the world with the final countdown being I, so I, big. I, I, wasn't, 
I wasn't surprised because they they obviously wanted to keep it kind of in house, so to speak, and they knew the guy, they knew what he was capable of, and he was a good fit, so they they went with Key. Hmm. What do you make of that out of this world record that they did with Ron Nevison? I think it's actually superior to the final countdown. Mm, I think it's an amazing because album. They be- yeah, they were beginning to get really find their find their feet and and take it to another level. And some of the the songwriting and the playing on it, the production, it's it is much better than the final countdown. Mm, I I think the guitar sound on that, especially the solos, that clean sound that yeah. Ron got. I I know a lot of people don't like. Some Ron's mix sometimes it can be a little bit trebly, but um, I think yeah. he I think he absolutely nailed it on that record. Yeah, especially on Superstitious. I mean, that's the the one song where people comment about Key Marcello solo on on that. I mean, they they up their game on that record. There's no doubt about that. And then took it even further um, when they were working with Bo Hill on Prisoners in Paradise. Mm. And. Out of This World doesn't have the final countdown part two on it. And I'm sure the label probably no. wanted them to write it. Well, yeah, when it, whenever some band has a, a hit like as, as big as the final countdown and a record label see the dollar signs and they always want something similar. But they were quite um, good in the respect that they weren't going to fall into the trap of trying to replicate what they did before. I mean, they're, they're their own, they have their own minds and they just did what they felt was necessary. And because they're irrespective of whether they were upset, but because really the final countdown was was a fluke. I mean, when a band has such a big hit like that, it always is kind of a fluke when it takes off because it's not very often that an artist can actually replicate that, that kind of success with another song. Very, very few artists can do that or be able to do that. Mm. Uh, did you get to interview the band? at any stage in the 80s or the early 90s? Um, I seem to remember, I definitely interviewed Key for Prisoners in Paradise, and I'm pretty sure that I probably spoke to Joey at some point as well. I can't honestly remember that now, but definitely I spoke to Key um, around Prisoners in Paradise. Hmm. Did Did you think that, in a lot of ways, they when Key joined, they were a completely different band than the one that was with John Norm? Um, not really, um, because I think both of those guys, they're different guitar players, but both of those guys bring a lot of good hard rock sort of mouse to, to the, to what they did. And I, I just think Key, Key was probably a superior musician from the point of view that he was more aware of, he was a student of production work, but that's not to sort of like, put John Norum down for here any of his contributions. I think they're both of equal measure in terms of their musicianship, to be honest, and they brought what they needed, what what Europe needed um, at the time that they were in the band. And now, obviously, John Norum is back in the band and they've gone um, on to record a, a whole heap of other records with him since they, they reformed. Mm. Now, John, John Norum did come out with a record. Um, it was a Total Control in the late 80s. Yeah. Uh, were you a fan of that? Yes. Yeah. I'm the one that followed that as well. Mm. He definitely rocked it up a, a bit more on that than on, on the Europe album, especially the Final Countdown record, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he was definitely a rocker. But again, you could tell that he was influenced by the by the same bands that that he had been influenced right from the start with like UFO and Thin Lizzy. They're, they're all over those records. And I think it was it Face the Truth of Second Army got Glenn Hughes involved in that as well. Mm. Um, which I, and that, I think Glenn Hughes has since referred to as, that as his AOR period. Uh, but I mean, that was a, a, a really good record. And, and John's put some, spent some pretty special records out on his own before the whole Europe thing came back into, into play again. Mm. And I think what surprised me the most is how good a singer he was. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I, I never realised he was that good a singer until I heard the Total Control record. Yeah, I mean Key is a pretty good singer as well. If you've ever heard any of his solo stuff as well, so although the guy um, that he um, recruited for the second Easy Action album, Tommy Nielsen, obviously is is a much more better singer. But but Key's got some pipes as well, more more of a rockier 
um, vibe than, than John Norum has, though. Mm. So, so what, what, what are your thoughts on Prisoners in Paradise compared to the rest of the records they did before then? Prisoners in Paradise took them um, to um, onto the next stage, and, and it was more Americanized from the point of view. Was the product obviously um, Nelson had lived in America for a, a long time um, and gave that sort of like a, more of a sheen to it, but it was more of a hard rock record. Whereas Bo Hill um, brought what he had learned over the years as a producer on, on records of his own and with rap and, and other bands, Winger, for example, and put his uh, mark on, on Europe. And I think he did a really good job in doing so. Certainly, I think there was resistance from Europe at first because I think they, I think from what I can remember that the record company wanted Bo Hill to work with them and then um, I think it was Joe who made some remark to Bo to say that you'll never work with Europe, not not by in, in any sort of malicious way, but his kind of style of production wasn't what they wanted at that time. They were going to look for somebody else. But then they later, something happened, and they ended up working with, with Bo, and they, and they got on famously together. They had a really good relationship in the studio and, and came up with a, a very another spectacular record in Prisoners in Paradise. Mm, it was a different record uh, than Out of This yeah. World. Um, not yeah. on, not only a different sounding record. It was it was a lot more varied as well. There was a, more of a Queen influence on on some of the tracks, especially the title track. Yeah, I think again that was probably because Bo's um, a, a musician himself, and obviously he's a very good arranger, so he, he may have contributed some ideas to that. But they were perhaps looking to take things into another direction as well, because they've done the hard rock thing um, on Out of This World, and now they're looking to take it into a different direction. Which again, going further um, along the line, when they when they reunited with John Norum, they have taken another direction, a more bluesier sort of classic rock retro feel to it. So it's all all about them moving forward as musicians and trying different things. Hmm. I do know a couple of things about Prisoners in Paradise because I interviewed Bo Hill about five or six yeah. years ago. And yeah. he told me that the album is called that because they were tax exiles, that um, yes. they couldn't go back to Sweden. Yeah. They had to spend so many days outside Sweden. Uh, Bo... Yeah, or somewhere, I think. Yeah. Um, Bo, the one thing Bo did say to me was... Uh, out of all the records he did back then, and he did Winger, he did Rat, he did Warrant, all those huge albums, his favourite record that he did was Prisoners in Paradise. And that really surprised me. Yeah, yeah. Probably because they, probably because they were good guys to work with and enjoyed working with them, whereas sometimes with a band like Rat, it was like they were all um, not particularly on the same page and they all want them from reading some of the stuff that, that Stephen Pearcey and Bobby Blocks have said in the books. I mean, I don't think Blocks has been particularly kind um, to Bow Hill in print. Um, and it probably was trying to get blood out of the stone in some regards to get performances from from those sort of bands. Certainly, I know that he had, he had issues with kicks and... Um, other bands, Twisted Sister especially, and I know he didn't particularly enjoy working with them because of, of them being very set in their ways and the, and the level of musicianship that they had or didn't have. And that's another reason why he brought people in to play on certain parts. The famous example being Warren, when he didn't feel that um, Joey... Um, Alan and um, Eric Turner were up to scratch in the guitar department so I brought Mike Slamer in from um, Streets to, to do the guitar work on those records first one more than the second one but I think it's probably more enjoyable because he was working with people who knew what they were doing mm. So when they broke up after Prisoners in Paradise did, did the breakup surprise you or did it not surprise you because of the overall music scene at the time was if you either adapt to grunge or you're gone? Yeah, it, it didn't really surprise me because it, of, of the musical climate and, and obviously Joey went on to do some very good solo albums um, that sort of like vary in the kind of stuff that they do but there's, there's two out of the three are really, really good and obviously 
some of the others went on to do other things and on that key went solo as well and um others contributed to various projects but um, it did surprise me that Jerry wasn't as successful as a solo artist than he was as part of the band, which is probably why it, over the time they decided to get the band back together again, albeit with John Norham instead of Key. Mm. Did that surprise you that they got John back, that they didn't actually go for Key? Um, not, again, not not really, because they obviously felt that now was the time to, that they'd obviously come to... Um, some sort of whatever had gone on with John previously was now they were water under the bridge and he was kind of back in the fold. Musically, they were on the same page, which is why they decided to go with John. And also with, um, you know, Key was obviously doing whatever he was doing. But from what I read something the other day, um, that I don't know whether this is still, I don't know how long ago this interview was, but when Key joined Europe, he actually bought John Norum's fifth of the band out from John. And I understand from this interview that I read, he actually still owns that one fifth of the band. Wow. So they've actually bought his stake back, which is a really strange situation. Hmm. So that must mean then that John Norum's on a salary. It's a weird setup, isn't it? You don't know. Yeah, it, I I know everything now is about ownership of the band name. Yeah. That it causes yeah. God knows how much trouble for for for, yeah. for you know for the for band members over time. All you got to do is look at like Don Dockin owns the name a hundred percent, and you have all the other guys start talking about doing tours, and it's like, well, Don's got to sign off on it because he owns the name. You got. Two LA guns, yeah. you had two rats, you had two great whites. It's all about the branding. Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah. So I don't know whether that's still the case, but it's certainly something I read online the other day whereby um he you know, he was waiting for them to contact him to see whether they're gonna buy it back. Mm. It, it is unusual as well that Keith was allowed by twenty five percent of the name because a lot of times when a, a member leaves the, the new guy yeah. that comes in to replace him doesn't have the chance to do that, that he's the one that's on the salary now, and the other four guys have 25% of the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's really strange. If you want to check that story out, it's, it, it is on the internet somewhere. I can send you the link to it. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was an extremely strange situation. Mm. It is very interesting. So when they got back together... Uh, for, um, did you follow what they did from the from the beginning with the uh, start from the dark record and secret society? Oh, absolutely, because I I certainly made sure that I I got all these records when they came out. So I've got certainly kept up to date with what they've been doing, and even the live albums, the multiple live albums that they put out. So yeah, like start from the dark and secret society, almost unplugged. Last look at Eden, which is a really good record. Mm-hmm. You know, Bag of Bones, War of Kings, all all of the good stuff. Bag of Bones, especially, I thought was an exceptionally good record. Mm. Absolutely. It's it's interesting. It, it's interesting the sound that they've 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 gone from since they reformed because in a lot of ways, Start from the Dark is more modern, and since then they've actually gone more for a seventies sound. You can see the progression from one album to the next. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think also that might be because of the requirements of Jerry's voice, because he seems to be singing a lot deeper than he did way back when, because so he's obviously taken into consideration how his voice has changed over the years. So he's able to now be able to confidently come up with music that suits his voice, Hmm. which is not something a lot of of, um, bands are able to achieve or singers are able to achieve because they just want to recapture the old days and it doesn't always work. Mm. It's interesting that you're a, a big, big fan of Bag of Bones. That's probably yeah. my, my least played record since they reformed. <laughs> um, that's the one with Kevin Shirley. And I've, I've spoken to a few guys who work with Kevin. He literally just plugs you in and says, play. And you don't do any, hardly any overdubs and you're done. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the sticker on the front says the most important record since the final countdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not I, sure, quite sure if that's the case, but <laughs> yeah, I I think a lot of fans really like War of Kings. Yeah, 
I think that got really, really good reviews when it came out. It's consistent as well, isn't it? Mm. And they actually toured the US um, on on that one for a little bit. They're actually over here later this summer. And you know what? I can't remember who they're with. I think it's Farner, someone else. Because there's so many package tours now, I can't remember all of them. But I've actually never seen them live. And I'm going to get a chance to finally see them now. And I think it's in August sometime. Yeah, well, you, you'll certainly be um, into that what, what they produce because they're still able to, to to do what they've always been able to do and put on a really show, and they're really still very good live. Mm. Have you seen them since they reformed? Yes, but I can't honestly remember where now. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably in London. It's probably in London. So I've got a good good memory for the eighties, but. The more recent times, it all seems to be a bit of a blur, but I have seen them. I think it was probably in London somewhere mm. um, on one of those tours. Mm. It definitely wasn't the roundhouse where they played that show, the final countdown anniversary show. It wasn't that, but somewhere else. Maybe Shepherd's Bush Empire or somewhere. Mm. Does their longevity after they reformed surprise you? Because you see a lot of these bands, they'll reform. And they might do one, maybe two records, then someone will leave, someone else will leave, and then they'll just jack it in. Um, they've done six studio records, all of them really good. It's still the same yeah. band. That has to surprise you. It, it doesn't, because these guys are professional musicians and they're not idiots. Um, they they know that, that, that they're able to do this, that they've they're comfortable in their own skins and they're comfortable and confident with their ability to keep to keep bringing the goods up and they still work together very well as a band so and, it, and there's no sort of bickering or anything between them either so I mean that says something for the fact that a lot of other bands are just because of the money side of things and and they want a piece of the publishing or whatever they just fall out but they they're very comfortable with each other and they're able to rise above all the nonsense that other bands sort of get involved with and, and maybe it's it, they're not involved in in certain um, rock and roll excesses either and mm. they always pretty down to earth characters so that's probably got something to do with it as well very focused mm, I think a lot of it as well is um, they more or less kept the songwriting in house uh, they haven't really yeah. um, gone for the outside songwriter that they know what they can do. They're very comfortable with what they can do. They write good songs, yeah. and and that's that's it. They don't need to go anywhere else because they they're able to to write the songs that they need to write. I mean, there's no pressure on them to write another final countdown anymore. Um, so they and they they have a very loyal fan base as well, and they've they you know they, they produce consistently good records and they're a good live act, so they're in a very good place. Hmm. What would you gauge their influence on melodic rock in general? Would you, do you see it as being uh, having an enormous influence, or do you see a lot of people looking at them as one-hit wonders? I think there's. I think people who aren't rock fans would see them as one-hit wonders just purely because of how big the final countdown was. But from an influence, but an influential level, I think the influence is more. Um, towards Scandinavian bands in terms of, of influencing them to achieve what Europe did as opposed to a more global um, or, or American. In fact, I don't think they particularly influence anyone in North America, but certainly their influence on music in Northern Europe um, has been um, quite phenomenal in terms of what has followed. Mm. You see bands heat and so forth. I mean, they are clearly influenced by by what has happened with Europe and the whole staging, the songs, and approach and everything. So, yeah, there, there, there has been a huge influence on what was followed by, mm. you know, what they've received. Mm. So if someone asked you, who, who didn't really know much about Europe, what album to start with, which one would you pick? The first one. Oh, the very first, the first one. one. Yeah, the very first one, because it shows a hungry band um, who were fresh for the type. And then, you, because if you, if you listen to the first one, then you can see how they've then developed. Because it, introducing, okay, so if you listen to the final countdown, that's 
just not what Europe is all about. Europe is, is about more than the final countdown. And so the best place to start would be that first album. Mm-hmm. And because you've got great songs in the future, Come, Farewell, Seven Doors Hotel, all of those songs formed a template for what would come later. And what came later was better than this record, but it's still, to me, the go-to Europe album um, that I pick and choose over any, any of the others mm-hmm. because it was it was so good at the time it came out and just went, took them to other levels over time with the subsequent records that they did. Mm. So would you be a bigger fan then of their 80s stuff before they broke up than the stuff they've done since they reformed? Yeah, because I always tend to be like that with, with bands. I mean, obviously, I, I like Bag Bones for whatever reason, um, but I'd much prefer any band's earlier material than, than the stuff the later because it's, I guess it's because I grew up with that and it becomes it, you become hugely influenced by what you've grown up with like others like The Sweet or Slade or whatever or Kiss, Angel I go to those older records more than I would the newer stuff I mean an example being the new Angel album I perhaps listened to once um not to say that it's not bad, but I might prefer and enjoy listening to what I've always listened to because that's what I know, that's what I've grown up with, and that's what is classic rock to me. Mm. So are you someone who's gone, are you gone back to the vinyl now? or you, like this, No, no. <laughs> your CD? No, I have a huge, um, I'm still CDs, I'm still very much physical product, but um, the record business um, wanted everyone to move over to, from vinyl to CD. And because uh, you couldn't get records on vinyl anymore, you kind of tended to have to go to CD. So then I decided, okay, I'll start buying CDs. And then I, I developed this taste for getting all of the stuff I had on vinyl, which it was available on CD. So I can't see myself ever going down the streaming route now because it's just gone too far. Mm. But vinyl... That's just vinyl to me. The whole vinyl um, revolution or bringing back vinyl, that's just an excuse for record companies to make money because if you think about it, why would you pay 30, 40 pounds or dollars or whatever for a new vinyl record of a reissue of something you could pick up in a second-hand store for about $5? True. And that's the original pressing. Mm. So, so who are you writing for now, Dave? You're writing for Rock Candy Magazine. Um, anyone else? Writing for, yeah, writing for Rock Candy Magazine and writing for Fireworks Magazine, um, and I do some reviews for Planet Rock. Okay. So, what what new melodic rock bands are you championing at the moment that maybe people haven't heard that you really like? Um, that's, that's actually a very good question because I can't think of any of them. Maybe I'm, I'm more into the retro stuff. I like writing about bands that never really got anywhere back in the day and, and trying to re, trying to get their stories told. I mean, there's a, there's a band um, from Cleveland called American Noise who recorded an album in 1980, um, self-titled album for Planet Records and I've just been in touch with a couple of their former members who have been extremely helpful in um, ensuring that they get their story told in a future issue The Fireworks and I would really love for that album to be reissued on CD so perhaps some way or another I can help do that because that's what's something that alongside Rock Candy Records and other labels I, I enjoy doing trying to get this music back uh, and put on, on the silver disc because mm. it's never been released in that format before. Yeah. But in, in terms of the original question about new melodic rock bands, and um, the one that perhaps springs to mind is the work, the work of art album, the new album, that's really good. The new Heat album is really good. Um, there is Obviously, those two bands are Swedish. Um, so all the good melodic rock stuff is, is pretty much centred around Sweden, coincidentally. Yeah. That's why I brought it up. I, was, I figured you might yeah. be able to name one or two of the Swedish bands. Is the guy's name, is it Martin Anderson? Is the guy in Heat? Is that his name? I'm trying to think I of the guy's... I, I'm trying to think I of... Or, or there's the other band called Eclipse. Is that his band? 
like Eclipse. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like Michael Erlams or something like that. Yeah, yeah. They're another band that are getting uh, pretty rave yeah, reviews. They, yeah, they've got they've got some really good albums. Mm. I've got a few of them here. Yeah, Michael Hmm. What What's your take on all the the projects Frontiers do in melodic Eric, rock? Eric mm-hmm. Martinson. Eric Martinson. Right. That's it. Eric Martinson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. What, what's your take on what Frontiers do with all the melodic rock projects now, where the music is really good to really good, uh, and none of them ever play live shows? Is that would, was that something that interests you when with with the music that you'll actually get invested in it, knowing that it could be a one and done, and they're never going to play live? I don't think that really bothers too many people, unless you are the persuasion that who likes to go and see live bands all the time. Um, I've never really been well over the years. I've sort of become more interested in just listening to records rather than going out to see bands play live. Um, but that's just my choice. But I can see where you're coming from. It, it kind of, the whole studio project thing can be a little bit frustrating, especially if it's almost like the, the people involved never actually meet because they're on different sides of the pond. Mm. Um, and front, Frontiers have to be commended for, for what they're doing because they're keeping the music alive and they obviously have, know their audience and have um, some healthy sales from what they're doing. Sometimes it can sound a little bit by numbers and sometimes it they can strive a little bit too hard to replicate um, what other bands have, have gone before. An example being um, Revolution Saints because I was quite disappointed with that, that most recent album that they put out because it was just trying too hard to be Journey. Um, and when you think about the individuals involved in that band like Jack, you know, Jack Blades and Doug Aldrich do they really need to be writing songs or even contributing to songs that other people have written when you know that they've got the talent to do something quite exceptional themselves as opposed to write to a, or perform to a particular template which is what Frontiers are perhaps kind of wanting them to do because yeah Dean Castronovo sounds a lot like Steve Perry's got a great set of pipes he's a great drummer great guy but you know it's a bit that last album was a bit too contrived for my taste Mm, I'm I'm probably going to be hooked up to interview uh, one one of them in the next week or two. Uh, I I I, I like I like the record. I've interviewed Dean a couple of times and Doug. Um, yeah. I do I do understand what you're saying. They, they did the last. They Frontiers did did the last Journey record, and it looks like Journey yeah. aren't going to make another album. So this is the next best thing. We'll get a band on the label to yeah. sound like that. Um, yeah. the template is given to them. They can maybe fiddle around with it a little bit, but there, yeah. there really is no freedom to sound the way the three of them would sound if they were left alone in a room to write together. Exactly, and I think Doug Aldrich is quite frustrated by the fact that they're not playing live either, mm. and which could be the end of that project or, or his involvement with it. Mm. They did one show in Milan, Um mm. The problem is, I've, this happens with every single Frontiers artist I've interviewed. I'll ask him the tour question. And it, after a while, I just didn't bother asking him. Because they all say the same thing. Yeah, we'd love to play some shows, knowing deep down they're never going to do it. But the thing is, though, where where are they going to play and who are they going to play to? I mean, because that this... Band Boulevard, um, who were um, the Canadian band, they've just pulled their UK tour for uh, apparently there's some sort of family um, reasons that it's, it's quite unfortunate. But how many people were going to go to those shows from a band that have never really, or no one, very few people know them anywhere apart from like a niche melodic rock audience? I mean, with Angel, they never toured in the UK previously or, or Europe before when in the classic lineup with your free and so forth. And yet when Frank and Punky um, came over as Angel last year, they played um, two shows in the UK and they weren't sellouts by any stretch. Wow. But they were clubs. Mm. I, I think the other 
thing you got to think about with these projects is um, I'm going to leave you going in a minute. Uh, by the way, um, the other thing you got to think about with these projects, it, just say Revolution Saints go out and play. They can't yeah. just play Revolution Saints songs. They'll someone somebody will want to hear maybe a Lion song or. Uh, a white snake song dog wrote to, you know there's going to be pressure on jack blades to do a night ranger yeah. dean might have to do yeah. maybe do a bad english song um they're never going to be able to go out and be their own band no because of the history yeah and i think that goes for nearly all the projects because i know last year that george lynch um mick, mick brown and jeff pilson did the end machine with robert mason and they played a couple of live shows um, in around around uh, April, I think, or in Vegas, uh, and I think they did one in LA. Uh, and Mick Brown couldn't do it, so they got Will Hunt in from Evanescence to cover, and they ended up, I think, playing four or five End Machine songs, and all the rest of them were Dawkins songs. Yeah, because that's what people want to hear. Yeah, we're in the nostalgia business. I think the new songs that they're making and writing. Um, they're just not going to play them live because the interest isn't there for the for for people to want to hear new music. Yeah, which is interesting as to how why Europe is still so popular when they're actually producing new music and they are actually playing that new music in amongst the old hits as well. So there's that there's that sort of like leeway that a band of that level can actually achieve. Mm, that's true. The final the thing is, I wonder whether Bon Jovi could do that. No, what Europe could do it? Definitely no, not. De- definitely not. I think it's got a lot of it's got to do with the size of the venues. It's if you're going, yeah. to, if you're going, if Europe are playing a two thousand to maybe five thousand club, nearly everybody in there is a fan of the band. They're not just there to hear one song. When you're when you're doing yeah. a seventy thousand seater stadium, all they want to hear are the four songs from Slippery When Wet. A couple from New yeah. Jersey, one or two from Keep the Faith, and they don't really care about the rest of the stuff. Same with Def Leppard. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Def Leppard are, are kind of like know that now, don't they? Because they they realise that they've got to do the hits, and so they only add in a couple of, of the newest things if they feel they can get away with it. Yeah, and they got to play them like in the first three or four songs of the set. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, because Leopard are going out now with Motley and Poison over here. I, I, I call these tours musical chairs tours because they all keep swapping. They keep swapping every year. Every three or four years, yeah. the same package goes out again. Yeah. And a band that previously said farewell, mm, the, the money smells nice. <laughs> <laughs> You've interviewed Motley, haven't you? I have interviewed Motley a few times, yeah. Yeah, but that yeah. was that was way back in the day. It was, yeah. Okay. Um, and I think the last time I interviewed them was like maybe nineteen ninety four when Karat which was just after they issued out with Karabi on vocals and, and Nikki they all came to London for, for press thing. It's, it's I think it was when Tommy Lee had hooked up with Bobby Brown, Jane Lane's former missus mm-hmm. before Pamela became involved, so yeah, that was all. 1994, that was. Okay, okay. Well, I, well, I'm going to leave you go. You've been great with your time again. I really enjoyed talking to you. No worries, Rich. Any time. Yeah, have a good rest of the day. All right, bye. Bye. There you go. There is Richie's chat with Dave Reynolds done several months ago, back when he was freezing his ass off. And definitely, uh, he is not freezing his ass off this week because it's been nothing but uh, 90 degree weather over here for the last two or three weeks. But anyways, that is uh, that's it for that interview. And again, like I talked about at the beginning of the show, if you want to catch up and find out more deeply about uh, you know Dave's involvement with music. Go over to uh, GetReadyToRock.com, go to their Backstage hero section, all kinds of good stuff in there, and check out the interview with Dave Reynolds. So there you go. Second week in a row that after the long break, worked up the energy to actually put a show together and get it out onto the interwebs. And hopefully within the next week, two weeks, that Richie and I can find a spot to actually either have him come down here to the studio or do it over Skype or whatever, but have kind of a discussion episode, catch up, see what's going on, discuss what's going on, because there's all kinds of crap going on. But uh, we're hoping to be able to do that uh, reasonably soon. 
Uh, definitely, I know I'm psyched as things start to open up a little bit here and there. That, uh, you know, this weekend, be heading out to the drive-in to see the Metallica show. So psyched about that. So at least it's a little bit of a concert. And then also uh, the day that I'm mixing this, that Symphony X rolled out the rescheduled dates that we were supposed to have back in the spring of this year, rescheduled to spring of next year. All with the same bill, which is great because I was always, uh, you know, apprehensive that maybe when they rescheduled those dates that it wasn't going to be with Primal Fear, but it is. So I'm psyched about that as well. So starting to get little bits of good news bubbling through in the world of metal. And of course, lots of great new releases that have been coming out as well and more of them on the way. You got a new one from Striper that's going to be out soon and a new one from uh, Armored Saint. I can't say enough about that. I am psyched that there is more great Armored Saint stuff coming on. Head up to MetalBlade.com if you want to check that out. And I also put up a blur about all, all of the things that are going on with that over at FocusOnMetal.blogspot.com. So you can check it out there, and that'll give you a link over to Metal Blade to uh, pre-order a bundle or just check out what's going on with it. But yeah, definitely New Saint coming out. That is uh, a great way to uh, bring in the fall. But anyways, for this week... That's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, be safe out there. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.